0: Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the first week of March 2020. This is Charles Hain. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And Writer for No Film School, Michelle Delatour.
1: How's it going, everyone?
0: And we are here talking about representation for writers and directors. We're talking about a bunch of grants that are coming down the pipeline in honor of our wonderful quarterly Grant Fest article. We're going to be talking about coronavirus starting to have actual direct impact on the film industry we've got some really cool tech news out of sigma on their new fp and an ask no film school that is a perennial question but where the answer keeps changing all that this week on the no film school podcast While it's easy to get distracted obsessing about the newest cameras and sensors, most filmmakers know that the real quality of your images start with the quality of your lenses. You want a lens that reproduces images clearly while still flattering faces and skin tones. You want a lens that's compact enough to handhold all day or fly in a drone. And you want a lens that is affordable so you can afford to add it to your kit and have it with you on all your jobs. If you're looking for a lens that combines all of those qualities, you should look no further than the Zine CF line lightweight with most of the lenses weighing in less than two pounds physically compact bodies beautifully sharp and slightly warm images all that at a price point that is hard to believe the zine cf lenses are available worldwide now check out zineglobal.com for more that's zine x-e-e-n global.com all right so our first story this week uh, we are going to be talking about representation for writers and directors. Uh, Jason Hellerman, who is a writer, like a screenwriter himself, but also writes a lot for the site, did a sort of a really thorough, massive breakdown on the landscape of representation for writers and directors that was full of both a really nice overview of like what they do and how they both work differently for you, like agents and managers are very different creatures, but also a whole lot of... Um, overview of like the landscape who the major agencies are who the major management companies are all of those kind of things so it's a really nice if you are a writer or director and you feel like you're at the time where you're ready for representation and that was one thing that jason hit really well where he was like you know the first thing you need is you need to be ready if you're a director you need a lot of work samples you're probably not going to get an agent as a director if you have no work to to get yourself wrapped which i thought was a really nice point on jason's part it was a really good lay of the land of a whole lot of things. The big thing here that's always really important to remember is that it's about agents need something to sell and managers too. They need to be able to go out and represent you to other people and they need to be able to go out to other people and say, "Hey, you should be looking at this person. Oh, I hear you're hiring for this show, you should look at this stuff." So they need stuff that they can send along. You need to be in a place where you have some really robust work samples and you can show off what is interesting about your work with the world. If you're not there, there yet. It's probably a bit premature. Although frankly, it's never too early to start learning about how this aspect of the industry works so that when your work is ready, you can have a better sense of how you should be navigating it.
2: It's, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get an agent or a manager by cold calling or just sending scripts places. You kind of have to be on their radar. And I think that underlines this sort of truism that I've found. um, It's kind of like an, if you build it, they will come scenario. Like they want, they need to want something you're doing you, but also your content. And I think if they, if there's an indication that you are creating stuff that could go somewhere, agents and managers come out of the woodwork looking for you. um, It's very hard to convince them that you're going to create those things. Does that make sense? (laughs) You can't just, uh, you can't be like, hey, I'm going to create stuff that's going to, generate a lot of interest. Like they have to see you creating stuff that's generating interest. And then they want to hop on board because then there's an opportunity for them to make some money because you have to recognize, I think, always that agents and managers are in this for their 10%, of course. And there's a symbiotic relationship where you need them to, as Charles, we've talked about so many times before, advocate on your behalf because it's very hard to sell yourself, even though so much of the industry ends up being about selling yourself. It's hard to make be your own best representative because you want the work, right? So you'd go out of your way to be like, yeah, I'll take a little less to do this. But the agent or the manager has a strong vested interest in making sure you get as much as possible most of the time. Um, But there are just so many little nooks and crannies to explore here about these kinds of relationships and what makes a good one or what makes a bad one or what it means to be hip pocketed, for example, or ways you can try and find them or they can try and find you. And I just I think it's I wish that I had read a primer on it before I embarked on my journey with these kinds of things, because sometimes you can be overwhelmed by a sudden interest and not really take honest stock of what's being placed in front of you and what your best options really are Um, there's a lot of things to consider so
1: so i took an intro to writing class like literally everyone does in los angeles and they walk you through the, the steps of how to do a pilot and we were all feeling pretty good about our ideas and then i asked what i thought was the key question afterwards which was what's next and the instructor literally had no other recommendations other than, well, you need an agent, which for someone who's only written at the time, was really only writing one pilot kind of felt like a stretch. And so I'd like to know two things. One, do we always need a pile of work um, to go approach managers or agents? And two, considering the conversations between guilds and agencies, are we still in a world where agents are necessary. There was a few months ago on Twitter, folks were sending out hiring tweets to staff their writer's room with the relevant hashtags um, to kind of bypass those tricky conversations and ensure they were hiring a diverse set of writers. Are we still in that phase or have we moved past that phase?
2: My first, uh, so those are great questions. And I'm curious what Charles thinks. And um, I think that uh, you do need a body of work. So an agent or a manager, just like a development executive may f- see something and think or read something and think, this is good. I think this is good. But what if I'm wrong? That's my job. My job is to be right. And if I'm personally wrong, that's dangerous. So how can I confirm my, my belief? Well, if it wins something <laughs> or if other people also think it's really good, or if there's some demand, um, if you win a screenwriting contest, you're on a radar. If you win a film festival, if you're, this is why I always say with film festivals, I really think it's a great idea for filmmakers to enter into local festivals in Los Angeles and New York, local if you're there, uh, but make sure you try and get your content playing in New York and LA, because a lot of these people will be able to attend those and look to see if there's good stuff. They can't make it to every festival all around the world, but they're based in New York and LA often, And so they can get out to an L.A. shorts festival, see something they think is awesome, see an audience react to it and then say, hey, I want to meet with that filmmaker. So here's the here's the thing
0: in the realm of all human possibilities. Has there been someone who took a writing class and wrote a pilot in that writing class and got an agent off that pilot and got that TV show to air happened? Probably. There's probably been one.
2: You know what? There's 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 at least one of everything.
0: Yes. And there's 74 TV shows shooting in New York City right now. There's like 780 TV shows being made right now. One of them was probably someone in a writing class wrote it and somehow ended up with an agent that they met at a coffee totally. shop. And it worked out. It's really the exception, not the rule, because of, you know, uh, I keep giving this speech over and over. I should record it. Everybody's always worried about protecting themselves and covering their ass. And, you know, the same way that that agent is trying to be like, oh, well, I like this script and it also won this award and it was also in this contest. It was also, you know, a writer with 10 good scripts, four of which have won awards, three of which have already been optioned, is way safer for them to be pitching and selling, right? You know, Tarantino famously had like eight scripts going around Hollywood trying to get attention before any of them started having traction. And like the people I know... That pilot script might get you a meeting, but all that pilot script tells an agent is you're able to do one thing once. And what they want, what they need is they need people who can regularly churn out good quality work because then they can regularly make money off of you, which is like not a bad thing. It's the way the system's supposed to work. So, you know, you want a body of work so that you can demonstrate you can create a body of work so that if they go pitch you on a TV show, you know, if your idea is about, you know, a talking hot dog, and they're like, okay, well, we couldn't tell you're talking hot dog pilot, but we got you, um, we got you in the writers' room on the next season of, uh, you know, some police procedural. You're not just going to pitch talking hot dog ideas every episode. Like, you have range, you have diversity, you can you can do multiple things. So it's a the body of work thing is 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 part of the system. Now I guarantee you, someone has just sat down somewhere and wrote a script and it was so amazing, something happened with it. But that really is the exception. Because also I think every, I mean, the goal is every script we write, we get better. Every script we write is better than the one we've before is what we hope we're doing. So I think the idea is also you do enough so that you keep growing and improving and so that you, you are in a situation where you have sort of developed a skill set that is capable of being useful in the creation of this work.
2: One way I know a lot of people got repped their first rep. And a lot of peers coming up around the time I did was because they were working with somebody who was already repped and that somebody had something go to series and they were in the room on it. So sort of like you can end up through relationships, you make get opportunities to be like, Oh, I'm my show. You know, I'm say, I say, I pitched a show and it goes and it gets the pilot and it's going to happen and they're going to start like putting together the writer's room. And maybe I have just enough clout to bring on one writer. Maybe I have clout to bring on more, but I'm like, I really want Charles Hayne to also be a writer in the writer's room on this. He's he's my friend and he's a good writer and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, OK, yeah, sure. Who reps him? Oh, nobody. And then, well, my my guy will rep him. Like that, that, that happens. And I know a lot of people who got reps that way. And then from there, they either built on that opportunity or not by creating other content. But there is like you're saying, Charles, a bit of a like sink or swim where you may get hip pocketed, which gets covered in it and is sort of like a non, uh, non-contract agreement between a creator and an agent where they're like, yeah, we'll send you out on some meetings and we'll, we'll take your stuff out, but it's, we're not going to do this officially until we actually see that there's anything officially going on here. Um, and then like, oh, there's a deal happening. Okay. Like now it's official. Now we'll sign the paperwork and you'll be our client. Cause there's money changing hands. But until then, why, why bother? Um, and you'll go out and you'll do your pitches and, like you say, Charles, maybe talking hot dog is like, no pass, what else do you have? And then it's like, oh, you gotta have like five things. You wanna have, like demonstrate you can do a lot, you wanna have a lot of stuff in the tank, you wanna be prolific, I've heard that said a lot. And uh, you you wanna demonstrate that people like your stuff. And I think what I was gonna say about, this is where I can turn something that maybe isn't the most actionable advice into something actionable creating stuff, m- meeting and working with other people is like a double, it's like a double win because you're going to have more content out there that could potentially generate interest and, de- and demonstrate that your content does generate interest, but you'll also be collaborating, which means you might meet those people who want you on their project when it goes, or just, you know, connect you with, the, uh, connect the dots for you at some later date. So the more you're doing stuff, whatever it is, the better. I mean, it's just always true, but like that's going to get you more integrated. Like I've produced on things where writer's rooms were put together. I like I've seen it happen a lot where people get to bring in a couple, one or two writers that they like or an assistant that they like that's a friend. And that builds careers.
1: There's also a world in which the thing that you write might have a life in an online series, right? Versus a TV show. And you're allowed to go make that. Right? There's no bar to entry if you want to just go test it out. If it's a financial there's a financial bar to entry, but, but the and you can you know, use there's nothing stopping. You.
2: Like we talked about last week. You could use Patreon and keep going.
1: Law and order, hot dog. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Another avenue that there is for moving your work forward. Obviously, getting represented is one way to do it, but you can also pursue grants. That is another way to get working on creating the work that could lead you where you want to go.
2: Yeah, so we have a few. There's a few things uh, up on NoFilmSchool.com recently that are about grants, festivals, contests, opportunities for creators to get their stuff seen or to win. One is titled Get Several Oscar Winners to Read Your Screenplay. And this is about the Broaden Your Horizon screenplay competition. Um, It's the Dallas International Film Festival, which runs from April 16th to April 23rd. And writers can submit scripts for feature films, pilots, or short films. Um, It's open through March 31. Uh, The festival runs April, but the contest is open through March 31. So you have this month to submit. And uh, you can check out this post we have that I just mentioned, and we'll link to it in the description of this podcast on the website. But uh, it's a great place to get people reading your script. Um, another one is there's a uh, Studio Fest, which is a contest that can help make your micro budget film happen. Studio Fest is open for submissions. Uh, Movie, Ma- Movie Maker Magazine covered it. Uh, we covered it, we've covered it in the past starting on February 20th, which has passed, but so it's open currently, you can submit to get a micro-budget film made. And this is kind of a unique one because Studio Fest produces the project. So it's like you're you're submitting an idea for a feature, like a pitch, basically, or or a script, or if you're a director, you submit a reel, and they actually put them together. So if you win this one, you'll get your micro-budget movie made, which is pretty cool. Um, There's also and I'll finish up on this one. A, uh, call the, um, There is also a Power of Diversity Master Workshop from the Producers Guild of America. So this one is uh, limited to people from underrepresented communities, but it is an opportunity to basically learn how to produce a movie like Soup to Nuts. It's the whole thing. And um, this one closes on March 16th. So there is still time to enter, But I highly recommend people doing it because we've talked a lot about the importance of producing skills and good producers. Um, Even if you're going to not be a producer and you're going to be a writer or director, this is something that uh, these are all skills that are extremely valuable. Um, And it's a it's a great career. Um, So definitely look into that one. It's through the PGA. So you'll have some really excellent mentors, et cetera.
1: Yeah, this is a good time to get started and look at these things. We're post-awards post show, post-Sundance, pre-NAB, so you may be inspired to jump in and create your stuff. And I'm going to extend the invitation to let us know how it goes. Um, we've had some articles in the past about folks who've um, gotten their films into slam dance through grants, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to know how it goes. Tell us about your process.
2: That's a great point. I love those pieces, anybody's piece about their success or their experience doing these things. We had, um, so Micah Van Hove, who's been a no film school contributor forever. Well, for as long as no film, almost as long as no (laughs) film schools existed. Forever. Forever. but he did this Werner Herzog contest to go shoot down mm, with him mm-hmm. in the jungle. And we have an interview with him that Jason did. Jason Hellerman did up on No Film School. And we had a follow up because he's now like funding a feature based on the short he did down there with learning a lot from Herzog himself. It's like doing these things like are, it's totally worth worth it to try and enter. And and it, it'll create opportunities.
1: The one that just got announced that I want to name is the Library of Converse with Ken Burns, uh, documentary filmmaking, which is for post-production and finishing costs, is worth looking into if you're making a film about U.S. history. And that is um, due pretty soon.
0: Up next... We have our first NAB story of the year. I'm gonna remind you guys what NAB is if you if you're not longtime listeners. It's the National Association of Broadcasters Convention. It's every year in April in Las Vegas. What Sundance is to directors and producers, NAB is to editors and DPs and and the sort of below the line people who make stuff. It is the big Getting your hands on all of the latest and greatest toys. And the the usually we don't have any stories this early, but we do have one story, which is AJA, which is, uh, you know, a major manufacturer. They made a camera for a while, but they're really known for their post-production hardware, their standards, conversion hardware, stuff like that. They're a big dominant player. Have officially announced they are pulling out of NAB this year over coronavirus. And it's sort of an interesting, bold decision. I mean, I don't think they're going to be the last to pull out of NAB. Honestly, you know, we've all been sort of frantically checking the website of whether or not NAB is actually going to go through games. The big games convention in San Francisco canceled Mobile World Congress, obviously in China canceled. And it's interesting because, you know, we're we're still relatively... Uh, COVID-19 has gotten an incredible amount of news coverage for something that is still relatively small like more people definitely die every year from global warming related deaths than get than die from coronavirus but what we are seeing is we are seeing some people sort of preemptively canceling big people gathering events in a way that actually kind of makes sense i mean maybe we just skip all our conferences this year maybe we don't have a bunch of big conferences this year maybe this is the year where we don't all fly halfway across the country for big conferences maybe that's the thing
1: That's the thing that I'm curious about because some of the conferences have changed to an online only format, but I'm curious about all the deals and things that you could buy or win from the floor. Do they still exist? Do the deals still exist? Do the announcements, I assume the announcements all still exist. They'll just be online.
2: I think there will be a version of NAB that's just very different. I don't think it'll be canceled altogether. That's my prediction. I think there's another interesting side to this though that we touched on before, which is how is this going to affect manufacturing, and production. So some
0: manufacturing is restarting, but yeah, I mean, that is a huge thing. Like if all of your manufacturing pipeline stops, even if you're willing to restart, if all your suppliers are not willing to restart, that does slow the release of new goods, absolutely.
2: I mean, I'm sitting here wondering about South by Southwest.
1: Facebook and Twitter pulled out I think, as of today or yesterday, I got to go to South by Southwest for the first time and I spent some time at Twitter house. So part of me is a little sad (laughs) about, kind of glad that I went last year, honestly.
2: I guess there's a couple ways to look, I guess there's two angles to discuss. And I want to know what you guys think on both of these fronts. One is, what is a personal decision? Like everybody gets to make their own decision, obviously. Like what do we think is safe for ourselves? And then there's, you know, and, and, and personally, I feel like, well, from everything I've read about it and from what I understand, younger people are at a very low risk for, in terms of the danger of this thing. And the other thing is, yeah, you know, we're always like every time I get in my car in L.A., I'm running a pretty high risk. Right. So I feel like this stuff doesn't feel like a massive risk I'm personally taking. But then I think there's the other, and I want to hear what you guys think about that versus, you know, like paranoia and panic spreading and things like wearing the little breathing masks, which I think have been scientifically proven to do very little to nothing. But I, there's the other side of it, which is how does this affect our work and our lives? Like, how does this affect people's ability to like, you know, if, if like, are, are things being canceled where people are making money and then are people losing the opportunities to make money and are gigs being, ca- like how quickly do we see it start to affect our community and filmmakers and, and their opportunities. And I think we posted a meme as a joke, which is like, this is a great time to work in post from home, right? Because you just sit at your computer and you can continue to work in bill in, a, in your safe sealed environment. But I'm curious what both of you think on those two fronts.
1: I'm a member of the Blue Collar Post Collective, which we talked a little bit about, or that was talked a little bit about in our editors round table. And there have been some discussions around what were the barriers might be to remote editing if you suddenly were asked, like some of the com- uh, companies that people have asked to just work from home at that point. And it's really interesting what people are talking about in terms of the barriers to working remotely, namely internet speed, <laughs> you know, like the speed of things and the review of content, so how one streams or implements live review of content. I'm very curious about how the Olympics will pan out. Um, Folks that have already purchased their travel to Tokyo for the Olympics, NBC has obviously has a lot of money invested, but also a lot of generating a lot of money for them. And I have friends that are editors that that are planning right now to go to the Olympics, and that is a potential looming, To your point, George, you just said that there are gigs that are going to be canceled. Like, there's a very looming fear of this might not happen and the gig that I thought I had will no longer exist.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because for me, like, I'm not personally, I'm reasonably healthy-ish, although I probably eat too many Oreos. But, like... I'm not like... Yeah, I saw that at Sunday. <laughs> oh my God, Girl yeah. Scout
1: cookies now. It's <laughs> but, not Oreos. We are in Girl Scout cookie season.
0: This is true. The So I'm not worried about coronavirus necessarily for me. I mean, we have our first case in New York. I'm still taking the subway. But I am worried about it in terms of like, you know, when we think about it epidemiologically, it's like we have these big events, we have the Olympics, we have some, uh NAB, and it's like those could turn me into a carrier where I'm part of a vector that then infects someone who's like older or, you know, I got a two-year-old. So it's like that is the worry for me so like i think if you're far enough out i really respect canceling things on the flip side i've been seeing all these interesting things about people who are like well there's been some debate about like do we just have the olympics and whoever is here gets to compete like i'm here from new zealand can i represent new zealand if i'm the only one from new zealand here and i'm like i kind of love that idea i don't think they would actually do that but like if you're already there and the event's not being canceled and then the biggest risk is like, all right, well, the event's not being canceled. I think the bosses at top should cancel these things. If the bosses at top don't cancel these things, I think down at the bottom, you might as well go because it's happening. And you might as well have the crazy adventure of being at the coronavirus Olympics. But I think it's better to cancel these things to slow the vector down. This kind of thing and an economic slowdown, we're going to see a big push towards a lot more figuring out what kind of workflows we can do remote. Um which frankly bums me out because I like working in, like, even post. I think post is still better when it's two or three people sitting in a room looking at a monitor talking than it is over email and remote to notes. Think about all those great conversations you've had over lunch break where you edit it all morning and then at lunch you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. What if scene 34 was our opening? And then you all look at each other and you're like, holy shit, Like that never happens on a remote job. A remote job turns into this much simpler thing where you send through a cut and someone's like, shorten up this scene, move this scene later. And that like great dialogue that happens in person before you sneeze doesn't happen. So, I don't know. I, it I think we will have... The same way 2008 changed the industry, I think coronavirus will likely have repercussions for quite a while. All right, on to exciting tech news. First off, the full review on the Sigma FP, a camera I really loved, is coming out, I believe, this week. And what's crazy about it is in the review, which I think we're still going to run the original way, I have like three nitpicks where I'm like, I wish they did this. I wish they did that. And here we go. My tech news this week Already in the time between I wrote the review and and the time it came up, the big release this week, they released a new firmware with two major, major features. The headline feature is that it does 120 frames per second raw, which for a camera that's $1,800 is batshit insane. Like, like that's just 120 frames per second raw is not something that you were getting out of cameras for $1,800 a week ago. Like, it was definitely one of the things that pushed people to consider more expensive cameras and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, And, you know, it's 8-bit RAW. The 12-bit external RAW, I don't think, goes up to 120 frames per second. But 120 frames per second is super fun and super useful, and you can do crazy stuff with it. And the fact that that is a firmware upgrade that Sigma just dropped, and they're not charging you an upgrade fee for, is, is amazing. But the second coolest thing... And in my mind, slightly the cooler thing is that you can now record the director's finder mode. So, what does this mean? So, You know, back in the film days, we used to use something called a director's finder where you could take the PL mount lens and you could mount it to a finder and you could wander around your set sort of previewing your scene and you put little tape marks on the floor for where you wanted your camera positions. And it was great. And the best part about it is you were looking through the actual lens you were going to shoot with. So you could really frame up precisely exactly what your framing is going to look like. You knew which parts of the set you needed to dress. You knew which parts of the set were going to be out of frame. You could really do precise prep work. It was awesome. Now we mostly use an app called Artemis to do a similar thing. And let me be clear, I love Artemis. Artemis, you are great. We don't have a review of Artemis on No Film School, which makes me think I should do one, but I use it so much. I don't even like it. It never crossed my mind to do one before. It's a great tool. But the problem with Artemis is it's a little tiny cell phone sensor size. So it's sort of guessing at framing. It's like, this is what An 18 mil in full frame would sort of look like. Here's what an 18 mil in Super 35 would sort of look like. They do a really good job, but it's never perfect because it's a tiny little cell phone sensor. The Sigma FP has a full frame sensor, which is as big as you see in motion pictures, as big as the Monstro, as big as the Ariel F. And it has a really cool mode where it can preview for you what various sensors and frame lines will look like. So in the menu, there's a little button, Directors Finder, and then you can choose like airy Red, or Sony cameras, and you can set it to Sony Venice or Alexa LF or um, Red Monstro. And then it puts up exact frame lines that are exactly what you would be seeing on that camera, but the camera weighs nothing. An LF is like an 18 pound camera and you might not have the LF in pre-production, but if you own the FP, you can go out in prep and shoot real precise prep images that are actually showing you your real field of view. One of my biggest frustrations when I did the review is you can't record this data. Um, When you would record the shots, all of the frame lines would disappear, which to me just made it pointless. Like I was like, no, 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 this is the point. I want those frame lines and I want a little readout telling me what the lens is. We're not going to get that until there's a smart adapter, but it's super exciting that they've already listened. They listened to my review before it was even posted. Thank you, Sigma, for reading my mind. And I'm sure a lot of other people also pointed it out, and I'm sure it was probably always in their plans. But this is a really killer feature. The Sigma FP is super duper killer, and that is why that is the tech news of the week. Okay, and then wrapping it up with an Ask No Films School question. So, this this is a question from No Name Pa, and I'm not sure if No Name Pa is your name or if, you're, if you didn't want to write your username, so you just made your username No Name Pa and you're a dad. Not sure. I'm going to assume No Name Pa is your name, and you want some advice on where to move. Basically, you're living in Texas, and you're saying, uh, do I move to Austin or do I move to New York or L.A.? Where should I go to get started in the film industry? And this is a question we get semi-regularly. We haven't answered it in a while, but it is a question that I like to answer again because the answer does keep changing. And here's the thing. First off, you can launch film careers in all sorts of places now. I know people who are like, I love St. Louis. I'm living in St. Louis and they're out there working. They're working mostly in reality TV, but there's work. Atlanta is on fire. New Orleans has slowed down a little bit, but it's on fire. I know people who are considering leaving New York for Atlanta. I know a lot of people who've left LA for Nashville and Austin. Um, I didn't even realize how many people had left for Nashville. And then there was that tornado that just went through and a whole bunch of people I know just checked in safe on Facebook who I thought still lived in LA. And I was like, oh, you moved to Nashville and you moved to Nashville. So the New York LA dichotomy, and these are all movie people, is not as strong as it used to be. However, it is still probably good if you are debating it to just go ahead and do it. Right, If you're like, I love Austin, it's the only place I ever want to live, I'm addicted to nachos and tacos and I just couldn't imagine life anywhere else, move to Austin, launch your career there. If you're open to New York or LA, you should probably go for it because then if you hate it, in two years you can always go back to Austin, Austin's not going anywhere, but you'll always know that you've done it and you have that experience and you'll probably build some relationships and experiences in your time there that are going to be useful and valuable for you. For me, if your end goal is to be writer, director, producer, you should probably go to L.A. If your end goal is to be editor, uh, director of photography or director, but in a more indie sense, you should just go to New York. I mean, New York had 78 TV shows shooting here last season. New York is on fire with production work. So if you're interested in getting into all of those crafts, I think there's probably more pure craft work now than there used to be than in L.A. Like, I, I feel like I go to L.A. Like, I go to New York and everywhere there are trucks, always. There's just so much production happening. You see that in L.A., but it doesn't feel on fire like it did 20 years ago. But if you want to, like, direct studio movies, you're going to have to climb that ladder in L.A. for the most part.
1: The other city that is a surprise hotbed of development is uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico.
0: Yes. Which
1: Netflix bought a studio home in and NBC is doing some work in, I believe. So if the desert is your thing and you want to be a kind of a big fish in a small pond, Albuquerque, New Mexico, if that's the new location on your map. I do think that there are several things that you can do from anywhere, which is good to... We talked about some of the grants and things, but really like screenwriting, you can write from anywhere. You probably can't meet the people you want to meet all the time, but there are still things that you can do from anywhere. And I'm just plugging that as someone who keeps that in mind all the time, but you can write from anywhere. You can send emails from anywhere. You probably can't meet with agents on the ground or anything like that um, all the time, but there's plenty to do from wherever you are. And I think that that's good to keep in mind regardless of your city.
2: It's hard for me to give an honest view of this because I've been in Los Angeles my whole life with little interruption and most interruption has been in New York. So I don't have a really good sense of what it's like to do this anywhere else or to be anywhere else. I know that here's the thing about being in L.A. You the, like so I've known a lot of people who came to L.A., um, with just the goal of getting into this business, and a lot of them have had success. So it's possible. I mean, I've seen that happen enough times. And I think that one of the reasons is that you get into little communities or subcommunities, And you work your way through things and you meet people and you build relationships and connections and a network and opportunities start to crop up. And then you see your peers who came here with you or around the same time, like also getting opportunities and things just happen because you can't like the joke is like you can't sneeze here and not hit no, no. COVID-19 um, notwithstanding and not hit like a writer, director, actor, etc. So it's just, it's, it's all around you. I do agree with Charles though. I think because the city is so spread out, you're not going to see the concentration of, of grip trucks or productions maybe that you would just wandering around New York city. But I know having my first PA job ever was on an indie feature in New York city. And there was a whole lively community even back then of people creating stuff there. So both places have it. And from what I gather, there's a lot of opportunities in Atlanta and you know, the Albuquerque's and the Toronto's and et cetera. So I guess my only thought is that now that you can do a lot of this stuff from wherever you are, like you said, Michelle, Um, maybe that's the best place to start and not worry about needing to be in a specific place, but worrying more about, like we talked about earlier, to tie it back to our first segment, you want to create that proof of interest. So you can create content, you can enter contests, you can put it on the internet, you can actually start building your career from anywhere now. So there's no reason not to do that. You don't have to come and spend money on rent in Los Angeles or New York, which, by the way, is, ins- is like pure insanity. Like you can start building your audience and building your brand and cutting your teeth. And then, you know, when there's enough reason to come out for meetings, you can do that or. But look, like I think Charles, echoing Charles, like if you just want to be here, then go for it.
0: That has been this week for the No Film School podcast. I'm Charles Hain. You can see my articles at No Film School. I have a web series coming out on Ficto in late spring called Salty Pirate. You can check out the trailer right now at saltypirate.tv. Uh, and follow me on the Instagram and the Twitter.
1: This is Michelle De La Tour. You can follow me on the Insta and Twitter at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. It was a pleasure to talk to you this week. And we'll see you again soon.
2: And this is George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. Please remember to comment on the podcast, to like it, to subscribe, to rate it, to share it, to tell your friends, to ask us questions, and to come back and listen to more. Um, You can find us on Facebook, the No Film School page. You can find us on Twitter, at No Film School. You can certainly head over to the website, nofilmschool.com. We have tons of great content there. Uh, As we've mentioned on this podcast, we have a big Sigma review, the Sigma FP coming up. We have a lot of content about Sigma right now. We will keep you posted on all things NAB and South by Southwest as we get close to those events and what's happening with them related to COVID-19. We also, I wanna also mention, we have a Producers Roundtable podcast that is also up from Sundance. We interviewed uh, a number of top line producers as well as some some novice producers all in one room. We had a great conversation. We're also gonna have our Shorts Roundtable podcast up next week. So keep an eye on our Sundance 2020 playlist Thanks so much, and uh, thanks for listening.